The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive your word like the Thessalonians did. Not as if it were the word of man, but as the very word of God. Help us to submit our minds, affections, and will to its authority. Help us to rejoice in the hope we have in Christ as he is revealed to us here in the gospel, that we might turn from our idols and serve the living God through faith and in love. In the name of Christ, our Savior, through faith in his incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension. Amen. The Reformation, of course, has a couple of watershed moments. We're all familiar with the day that's coming up, October 31st, when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door uh, in Wittenberg. That's one of those watershed moments. The other watershed moment was uh, the Diet of Worms. I know, it's a funny name for us who aren't German, okay? But there he was called to essentially recant the things that he had written. And there were numerous things he had written at that point. The Reformation had been going on for a little while. And uh, he, of course, was a little hesitant, and he was promised, before he left, safe passage to and from this diet in worms. We're all familiar, perhaps, maybe we're not, I don't know, but I'm very familiar with the the process in which he was asked to recant, and initially he said, may I have one night? And so then he wrestled in prayer before God, what is it that I should do? I believe these things that I've written are true and faithful to the scriptures, but they're asking me to say that they're not. And so he's recalled the next day, and he stands, and as you might imagine, with his life on the line, because for him not to recant means excommunication, which means a price is going to be placed upon his head. And so he hems and he haws a little bit, and they keep pressing the issue, and finally he begins the statement that ends this way. Since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. So much for the simple reply. Unless I am convinced by the scriptures and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. 
We're not sure if he actually said, here I stand at that moment, but let's imagine, here I stand, God help me. Amen. Frederick the Wise had learned that the emperor, if Martin Luther did that, was going to retract the passage of safety. And so he and Spalatin had already come to an agreement as to how to rescue Martin Luther from imminent arrest. They learned that there was a plot to capture him on his way back to Wittenberg, and so they hired men. And no one knew. Luther knew, one of his friends knew, and the men who were going to capture him knew. And so as, they, uh, as he leaves, he spends the night in a village, he preaches in the church, spends some time with some people, the next morning they go, and in the middle of the forest, these men, these armed men, suddenly appear and uh, act roughly, tossing down the, the uh, driver of the wagon that they're in, taking Luther, putting a, a bag over his head, and taking him enough into the wilderness. Those who watched weren't sure exactly what happened. Was he arrested? That was most likely what they thought. But what happened is that these men took him to the Wartburg Wartburg Castle. They kind of brought him in the back door and brought him into the prison area, so everyone thought it was just another prisoner that was brought in, and he was disguised. He still had the thing on his head at that point. They brought him eventually into a cell that was kind of cut off from the rest of the castle and gave him lessons on how to act like a knight and trained him to be Knight George. And to and basically for the next 10 months, he lived in the Wartburg Castle, pretending to be another man. The big idea this morning is a little different than what you have in your uh, sermon notes. I changed it this morning. Stu Sherrard said I should do that. Um, <laughs> He was teasing me when I left last night that I had to go work on my sermon. Uh, but Jesus remained on earth until the mission was accomplished. Okay? That's the theme there. There was still more for Luther to do until the mission was accomplished. God's mission was accomplished. And same thing here. Jesus remains on earth until God's mission is accomplished. That's really the point when we think of these passages here in John 7. So if we start with the idea that Jesus' mission had a specific time frame that had to be played out in the providence of God. We see as we start this passage that the Pharisees are responding to the crowd's confusion about Jesus. They hear the people muttering. They hear some people saying, well, he can't be the Christ. But then there are others saying, as we mentioned at the end of last week's sermon, If the Messiah comes, will he do greater things than this? He must be it. And so they hear the people from their perspective, remember, look at this from the perspective of the Pharisees. They think that these people, or some of them, are being seduced by this man, Jesus, whom they view to be a blasphemer. Okay? Uh, They already have him, you know, want to arrest him because he has, from their perspective, broken the Sabbath and from their perspective, has claimed that he is the same as God, and therefore he is viewed as a blasphemer by them. And there's a reason why I had Jerry read Deuteronomy 13 to you this morning. That's how they viewed Jesus. 
as someone who has come amongst them, who is advocating to them the worship of a different God, and therefore a man who is a dangerous seducer and sorcerer who must be dealt with with death. And so they go to the priests, and they meet together and discuss the fate of Jesus. And they dispatch the temple police in order to arrest Jesus and bring him to them for trial. Now, Rome did this interesting thing. Though Israel was under the power and authority of Rome as a conquered people, Rome gave them a concession. And that concession was, we don't care about your religious laws, but you do. So we'll allow you to have this police force that operates within your temple and can do some business outside of the temple that has to do with your religious laws. You can enforce your own religious laws with the exception of the fact of the death penalty. You can't just go killing people. Okay? And so from our perspective, it's almost like, and I, I, part of me doesn't want to say this, but the police on the reservation, a conquered people, with whom, in a sense, we don't interfere with their business on the reservation. There's plenty of those around us today. Sometimes we just live blind to them, okay? But they have their own police force to enforce their own laws as well as the laws of the state. They're almost, in a sense, a nation within a nation. That's what this police force for the temple was, sort of like taking care of this nation within the empire to enact these laws. And so this police force was, the men were taken from the Levites. And they, of course, enforced religious sorts of laws. And so here come the police. Jesus can recognize the temple police showing up as there he is teaching in the temple again. And he begins to dress the officers. And I imagine the Pharisees who are probably hiding behind those officers. Because that's what people do. They want to see what, how it goes down, okay? But they don't want to be in the action themselves. And so Jesus begins to speak to them. And here we have these rather cryptic statements of Jesus. And he starts off with, I will be with you a little longer. Meaning, essentially, you're not getting rid of me yet. <laughs> okay? A little longer. His time on earth is coming to an end. And, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the, the priests, they all thought that it was coming to an end really fast. But Jesus knew it was not coming to an end really fast, just fast. Jesus was not in God's providence to be arrested and tried during the Feast of, of Booths or Tabernacles, which is when this is taking place. Jesus knows that because he is the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, he is going to be arrested, tried, and killed during Passover celebration. The symbolic lamb of the Passover. So, I'm with you a little while longer. The end is not here. The hour has not yet come. In fact, there was more for him to do. And you see, that's why in God's providence, Luther was in that castle. 
There was more for him to do. The work that God had set aside for him to accomplish had not been done yet. And one of those great things was a Bible in the language of his people. A thing that we take uh, for granted, unless, of course, we work with tribal people in Mexico. Uh, well, we take it, in terms of, take it for granted in terms of we have it, but we recognize that they needed to have it. And Luther recognized if these people are going to know God, if they're going to be freed from the, from the slavery, so to speak, to the powers of Rome, they need the scriptures in a language they understand, German. And so he set out, and during his, his ten months within the confines of that castle, despite the many physical ailments that he experienced, despite the aloneness and alienation, I mean, there's like three people who could visit him, Okay. <laughs> He translated the New Testament into Greek. Sorry, German. See, it begins with a G, too. All right? Got Greek on my brain, apparently. Jesus' work was not done. It was not time. But instead of hiding, Jesus is going to remain within the presence of God's people. Jesus then says, And then, and only then, I am going to him who sent me. And so Jesus gives this sort of cryptic hint regarding his future. He's saying that I'm going to return to the one who sent me, the one he keeps declaring is the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm going to return to the Father. I'm on a mission right now. That mission is not going to go on forever. But when it's done, I'm going back to him. I'm not staying here. There's this idea of almost, in part, that he's going to report. Now, it sounds silly to us. Of course, the Father knows everything that the, father, the Son has been doing. He, he's fully informed on all of these things, and in fact, has ordained all of these things. And yet, there's a sense of Jesus reporting back as a faithful son, as a faithful servant. But more than that, he's going to receive glory. There's going to be, there wasn't a sense that there's going to be, there was, almost like a victory parade. The scripture gives us hints of this in, in places like uh, Philippians chapter 2. As God bestows upon him the name that is above every name, uh, at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, R.C. Sproul notes that without the ascension, both the cross and the resurrection are meaningless. Because the ascension was his investiture. It was his coronation as the king who now rules in glory for the benefit of his people. It's the coronation of King Jesus at the ascension. And so Jesus receives glory when he ascends to the Father. It's not just a neat party trick in Acts chapter 1. We see, however, that as the Son of Man, as the Son of David, as the second Adam, Jesus now sits at God's right hand to rule as God's vice-regent and to dispense salvation for, to people, to pour out the Holy Spirit so that people might receive a heart of flesh and receive the indwelling of the Spirit and remove the blinds upon their eyes that they might see the glorious greatness of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's what's going on. 
And so they just see this very lowly rabbi, and that's exactly what he looked like. Again, let's remember what we talked about earlier from this passage in John 7. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They only see the lowly rabbi that they're trying to arrest. But one day, that rabbi will be revealed as one of infinite majesty. There was that day at the end of what Luther called my Patmos, my exile, when he came back and was no longer Knight George, but was Martin Luther, the reformer. There is a day when people will see the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ when he returns from his bad term, but exile, so to speak, from this earth, when he comes to restore it to a glory far surpassing that which was at creation. So Jesus' mission, and therefore his humiliation, was for a specific period of time. Secondly, Jesus' offer of grace has a specific time frame. So not only does his humiliation or mission have a time frame, so does the offer of grace. Jesus continues to speak to the officers, the Pharisees, and the assembled crowd. He says, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Now here's part of the interesting aspect of this. At this moment, they don't realize that they'll want Jesus anytime in the future. So they might, be, they might be thinking of this in terms of, we will seek you to arrest you, but we're not going to find you. And that's not what Jesus has in mind. Okay? Jesus uses the same terminology way up ahead in, in uh, chapter 13, verse 33, to his disciples. You're going to seek me, and you will not find me. Now, to them, he's speaking about his physical inaccessibility to the disciples after the ascension. But is that what Jesus is saying to these people who don't believe? I think it goes far beyond that. He's not merely hinting at the fact that he's not going to be physically present for them to arrest or for them to, to find something even greater is going on. But let's recognize at first that Jesus, the man, was on earth but after the ascension, he's going to be in heaven where they cannot reach him. Certainly, we must remember that the disciples can seek him in prayer and find him. They have access uh, to the Father and to him through the power of the Holy Spirit precisely because of what Jesus does in the cross in the resurrection. So something greater is going on. Let's start in this place. John 8. See? We're getting to John 8 today. And so he said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. And so then in the very next chapter, Jesus uses these very almost identical words, but adds to it to clarify it. It's a word of judgment, a scary word of judgment. They're going to seek him, but they will die in their sins. This is very close to what we read uh, in community group 
from Isaiah 22. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself to my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. A word of judgment. That generation to whom Isaiah was speaking would not find redemption for their sins, but they would find only the judgment of God. Future generations of Israel would find redemption from their sins. But there's another passage. Proverbs 1. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, does that not sound like the earthly ministry of Jesus? Okay? He's speaking. He's calling. They're not listening. He's stretching out his hand. They're not heeding. He, they're ignoring all of his counsel, and they have none of his reproof. And then it continues in verse 28. Then they will call on me, and I will not answer. Now really listen. They will seek me diligently and will not find me. Word for word, except for that addition, diligently. Judgment. These people who have ignored Jesus at the very last second, so to speak, decide, well, maybe we should listen, and they can't find him. Judgment comes down. Jesus is saying that there were many who would oppose this gospel of his. It's not going to end after his death. It's going to continue on, just like the Pharisees. In the Reformation, we see the same thing. John Calvin notes, the papists in the present day are not less mad or less eager to extinguish the gospel. And so he saw, he recognized the, the powers of Rome taking the place of the Pharisees of Jesus' day as being those who opposed the, free go the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. And there are powers today that do the same thing. Okay? They're not religious powers right now. They seem more to be secular powers. But oppose the gospel of free grace, they still do. They want to, in many ways, increasingly, in this country, shut people up. Lest people hear, believe, and turn from their sins. We see in the scripture many examples of people who seek the Lord when it's too late. Judas, for instance. Judas. He regretted his actions. But with a worldly sorrow, he sought God. He wanted a change in his circumstance. He didn't want a new heart. He sought without repentance. He's not the only one. Esau, who we find in Genesis, sells his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup. Later on, as it says in Hebrews, okay, interesting though, in Hebrews it says, in Hebrews 12, unholy people like Esau, okay, the unholiness of Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
Notice it's the same thing in both the instance of Judas and Esau. There are tears. There is a worldly sorrow. But there's no repentance. And so though either, though, though both of them are in a sense seeking, they're not finding because there's no repentance that's taking place. Their sorrow has to do with their circumstances, not with, I have failed the living God, and I need forgiveness. So there was no repentance. These are in the Scriptures, I think, for a very important reason. They're there to instruct us, because people do not know how long the offer of salvation will stand. This is very blunt in some ways. We know that for the average person, it stands with up until death or the return of Jesus. Do you know when either one will happen? Remember that day, Simmons family, when you drove out of this parking lot and you went to the inner... Was anyone thinking, today's a good day to be in an accident? No. We don't know what will befall us. We don't know. We fool ourselves sometimes thinking, I have plenty of time. I can enjoy my sin for a season. Jesus will always be there. It's okay. You don't know. You don't know because something could befall you or Jesus could return before you think you're ready. There is a stark warning in Scripture for people. Now, this doesn't apply so much to, I think, most of you, although there are some children here who have not yet professed their faith and so forth. But when you're speaking to people about Christ, this is one of those things you want to communicate. We don't know how long we have. And a lot of those sale flyers you'll see, while supplies last. Okay? No rain checks on this thing. We don't know when the supply will end. If you wait, you know, I love it, Amazon. I always see this. Only six items left. <laughs> you know how many are left, but you're not, you're not sure how many people are there like you who want that item. Can I wait till tomorrow? I don't know. We do that all the time. This is something with which we should not wait. We should not tarry. More scripture. Help us grasp this. In, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is quoting in part from Isaiah, For he says, referring to Isaiah, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. End quote. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul was pleading but with the Corinthians, not to put off their repentance for their many sins. Not only that, but we see in Matthew 23, as well as Luke 14, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And Jesus is about to make what we call 
the Olivet Discourse, which focuses primarily on the destruction of Jerusalem, that the better part of an entire generation of Jews would be destroyed because of their unbelief in the judgment of God. The blood of all the prophets before was going to be poured on that generation, according to Jesus in Matthew 23 and 24. And so while we recognize the incredible graciousness of God, the mercy that we cannot comprehend, we have to see it within the frame of the incredible justice and wrath of God towards those who refuse to repent of their sins. We have to recognize on the basis of Scripture that there are some generations and some nations that pass a line beyond which there is no more opportunity for repentance for the vast majority of them. That's hard to say. In other words, as I mentioned, there should be an urgency that accompanies the message of the gospel. And so the the offer of salvation will not continue forever. Don't put off the Christ of the gospel. Thirdly, Jesus was and is mysteriously present everywhere. Jesus says one last thing that they really can't figure out. Okay? And there's, there's a bit of irony and all of this. He says, where I am, you cannot come. Now, did you catch that verb tense? Present tense. Where I am. It's not future tense. He's not talking about the ascension. He's talking about the present. And that's why it's, it's, you're, you're kind of like, if you're sitting there, in the audience, you're going, you're right in front of me. <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> There's something going on that they couldn't comprehend. We see that in the very last verse where they're kind of, what does he mean by? What does he mean by saying this? There's a great amount of confusion within his audience and most likely his disciples as well. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus already was in a place where they could not find him, even though he's also right in front of them. We remember that during his earthly ministry, Jesus' humanity was present on earth. During his earthly ministry, Jesus' divinity was still present in heaven as well as on earth. You see, we want to be a little easy on these folks. They had never pondered the possibility nor the reality of the incarnation. We can see threads of it in the Old Testament that in a sense they should have been ready, but you know, you can't put all the pieces together sometimes until it's right before your face. The disciples at this moment hadn't figured it all out. They didn't realize all that was going on in the life and ministry of Jesus. We have an advantage of 2,000 years of church history in thinking through this for us that they didn't have. So let's be a little merciful to these guys, in a sense, okay? But let's not be merciful in this sense. They could have asked Jesus, what do you mean? But instead, they asked each other, what does he mean by, I don't know. It's the pool of ignorance, okay? 
None of them know, but they're asking each other. So after the ascension, we see that his humanity is in heaven, but of course his divinity is present in both. And I hate to use those terms even, his humanity, his divinity. He's one person. But we recognize this one person who has two natures. His human nature, because it retains all the properties of humanity, can't be everywhere at the same time. It can only he, the, the physical body of Jesus, his humanity, can only be in one place at a time. At this instant, it was a temple in Jerusalem. At the present instant, he's in heaven. But Jesus, because he is also fully divine, is always and never loses the properties that are with his divinity. Therefore, he is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, and therefore present everywhere. Heaven and earth, and anywhere else there might be that we don't know about because the scriptures have not told us. Well, hell, he's there. Not in goodness, but in justice, he's there. So, this is cryptic. And so they're, they're kind of trying to process this and understand this. And the place they go, this is where the irony starts to come in. The place they go is that they're wondering if he's heading to the Jews and the dispersion. If he's going to go to where they are amongst the Gentiles outside of Palestine. And they're wondering if Jesus is really saying, I'm going to go talk and teach the Greeks. Since you guys don't listen. The irony is, is that most likely this gospel was written to the Jews in the dispersion. Who, the Jews who were not in Palestine, like Matthew's audience was. They are, it is to the Jews who are outside of Palestine, surrounded by the Greeks. So Jesus didn't do that, but he sent his disciples to do that very thing. There's the irony. That's not what Jesus meant, but and yet that is something that Jesus accomplishes. All right. Luther. Back to Luther for a second. Luther was, for a time, taken from the people so that he might work for the continuation of the Reformation without the fear of the bounty that was placed upon his head. Jesus works in plain sight to accomplish all that he was sent to do even though a bounty was placed on his head. Jesus awaited his coronation in the ascension when he returned to the heavenly throne room. It is from there, unavailable to us physically, that Jesus works for the continuation of the spread of the kingdom and of the salvation of sinners. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the proclamation of grace let us not merely bow before the mystery of the Incarnation, but let us receive the grace that He so freely offers because of His Incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for not thinking about the ascension a whole lot. We lose sight of that sometimes in everything else. 
Yeah, I agree with my brother R.C. that without this, the other stuff doesn't matter. We thank you that you have raised your son to the heavenly places, that you have seated him whose saving work is done in the sense of the sacrifice at your right hand, where he reigns and rules until he puts down his enemies when they become a footstool underneath him. Father, we ask that that work would continue. The bringing all of the world into submission to Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd work through your people here at Desert Springs. That we might understand more, more fully what the gospel is and how it changes us and what it calls us to. Help us to be more faithful to you. More humble, recognizing the places where we fail. More dependent, recognizing that we don't have the strength it takes to do this, but you do. More confident, because we remember that it is you, your zeal, that will accomplish these things and not ours. So, Father, help us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.